that we are in Galatians. And last time we finished Galatians chapter 4, which means that we're now on chapter 5. We talked about the two covenants last time. And Paul compared the covenant at Sinai to Hagar, Abraham's concubine, by whom he sired Ishmael. And the covenant in heaven is like Sarah, who is the wife. The idea was that the concubine or the one that leads to slavery will not inherit with Sarah, the wife, and Isaac, the son. And what we said last time, and I will say again so we get a run here, the problem with the covenant at Sinai is that it's externally applied. Instead of being written on a heart of flesh, it is written on a stone tablet, which means that your following of that Torah is not something that emanates from inside of you, but something that is commanded from outside. And what God wants is the Torah to be inside of you so that it comes out naturally. The deal is that the actual words of both covenants are identical. The covenant given at Sinai is no different textually than the new covenant and the covenant that is in heaven, the covenant in Jerusalem, etc. The words are the same. The only difference is if it's outside of you being imposed, it is slavery. Whereas if it's inside of you coming out as an expression, it's freedom. And that's sort of the point Paul is making with his analogy between the two women, Hagar and Sarah. Now having said that, we'll now go into chapter 5, because you sort of need that as a run-up. In fact, let me, let me back up. I'm going to pick it up in 4.28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is at the tail end of a long dissertation on salvation by faith, and what do you depend upon for your justification? And he will repeat that again in chapter 5. So we'll get that in just a minute. So I'll leave that for 5. So chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. The key phrase here is the desire to be justified by the law. And we said in the past, it is not the function of the law or the Torah to grant salvation or justification. It's not its purpose and it can't do it. And that's what Paul is saying is if you're trying to be justified based on 
adherence to the letter of the law, you're going to fail. The only way you can be justified is through faith, just the same way that Abraham was justified. Now, you'll go on to talk about some things that come from the flesh as opposed to things that come from the spirit. And one of the things you'll notice is that everything that comes from the flesh is forbidden in Torah. So it is not the case that he is speaking against the content of Torah. What he's speaking against is trusting in your good works to justify you before God. And one of the things that unfortunately happens in much of Christianity is this passage of Scripture gets misread, and what people do is they regard the Torah as something to be avoided. And that's not what's being said. What you do, I believe, is once you have developed a relationship with God, you develop hunger for what he says. You read his word and you want to do what he says. At least that's what happened to me. However, having said that, that's not the same as having the Torah written on your heart. Because what you're doing is you're taking something that is external to you and you are obeying something external to you. In the new heaven and the new earth, what God is going to do is he is going to take your stony heart and replace it with a heart of flesh. And at that point, the Torah is entirely going to be internal to you, and following the Torah becomes part of your nature as opposed to something you have to think about and study. And by the way, we've done this before, but it's worth skipping by briefly again. Everybody in the Bible gets saved the same way. Abraham gets saved, Isaac gets saved, Jacob gets saved, David gets saved. Everybody in the Bible gets saved exactly the same way, and they get saved by faith in God. Now, I will suggest that David, for example, didn't necessarily know the name and person of Yeshua, but he did know God, and he had faith in God, and his faith is what saved him. Just as Paul says, Here in Galatians, it is Abraham's faith in the promises of God that God then counts to him for righteousness. So Abraham's salvation is a function of his faith in the promises of God, as is David's salvation, as is your salvation, as is my salvation. There has always only been one standard for salvation. It's unfortunate that Many people don't understand what's going on in this letter. He's not talking against Torah. He's talking against Torah written on tablets of stone, which is not where it's supposed to be. When I say that the New Covenant is a New Jerusalem thing, it also is possible that it may be a Millennial Kingdom thing. I'm not dogmatic about that at all. But it is definitely future, because what Paul says in Ephesians and let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Let's pick it up in verse 11. Ephesians 1, 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, him being Messiah. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who are the first to hope in Messiah might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it. 
Well, the idea here is when you come to God, and just like Abraham did, you trust in the promises of God, you are at that point given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is your guarantee, your earnest, your claim check, your marker that says you are going to make it into the new heaven and the new earth, and you are going to have an inheritance there, but you do not have it yet. You do not, however, have the Torah written on your heart at that point because you still have a heart of stone. So now back to Hebrews 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, notice who the fault is with. The fault here is with the people in the covenant. It is not with the words of the covenant. Now go down past the quotation of Jeremiah 31 and go down to verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. First off, something that is obsolete is not useless. So, for example, I spent years and years in the Army, and I was almost always equipped with obsolete equipment. And what that means is there is a new and better version on the way, but you don't have it yet. But I guarantee you that my obsolete rifle would still kill people. So the fact that it's obsolete is not the same as done away with. And then he uses the word, it is becoming obsolete and growing old and is ready to vanish away. All right, let's get back to Galatians. Let's actually pick it up before. For you are severed from Messiah, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Messiah Yeshua, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So notice what he says in verse 5. We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. It's something we are still waiting for. Paul is still waiting for it. Verse 7. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. In other words, you are not being persuaded by Messiah and the Spirit. You are being persuaded by somebody else. Verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So he's saying, this guy is leading you astray, and I am confident that you will listen to what I'm saying. And of course, the business of the little leaven leavens the whole lump goes back to one of the parables of the kingdom, where Yeshua talks about a woman who hides a little bit of leaven in three measures of meal and so forth where leaven represents sin. Verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Yeah, he's, he's ticked. Oh, by the way, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What he's saying here is, if you trust in circumcision, 
for your righteousness, for your salvation, then you have ceased to trust in the grace of God. And that's what he means by a little leaven. This one little thing where you have convinced yourself that in order to be righteous and in order to be saved, you must be circumcised, is sufficient to mess up everything else you've done. What he's saying is that circumcision is not necessary. In this, as we've said before, he is not speaking against circumcision because in another context, he takes Timothy, who is of Jewish ethnicity, Gentile father, Jewish mother, and has grown up into a young man who is not circumcised. And in order to have Timothy accompany him on his missionary journey, he has him circumcised because he is a Jew. Titus, who was also one of his disciples, and is pure Gentile, he does not have circumcised. So what he's saying is circumcision has a purpose, and it is a sign of the covenant between God and Israel. Gentiles who are coming into the kingdom of God do not have to become Israelites. They are perfectly fine. They are perfectly saved. They are going to make it into the new heaven and the new earth. They are not going to hell, but they do not have to become Jews. Verse 13, For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And of course, this takes you lots of places, but most easily is to Luke 10. And that's where the lawyer asks Yeshua, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Yeshua then gives him a treatise on love God, love your neighbor. That's where we get the parable of the Good Samaritan, for example. So what Paul is doing is simply quoting Yeshua. You all are aware of the two rabbinic schools of Hillel and Shammai. Hillel and Shammai are two old rabbinic schools, and one of them is regarded as very strict, and the other one is regarded as very lenient. It's sort of a, a running thing in Jewish literature various rulings of Hillel and Shammai. And, oh, by the way, if you follow either one of them completely, you're fine, according to the Jews. It's only when you try and mix and match. So anyway, there's a story that Shammai, who was the strict one, had a Gentile come to him and said, teach me Torah standing on one foot in sort of a sarcastic way. Shammai looked at him and hit him with a two-by-four and ran him out of the synagogue. So the same guy then goes to Hillel and says, teach me the Torah standing on one foot. And Hillel says, the thing that is hateful to you, do not do to your brother. The rest is commentary. Now go study. So he's essentially saying the same thing that Yeshua does. Love God, love your neighbor. The rest is just commentary. The rest is case studies. The rest is examples. And learning those examples is extremely important because if you just have sort of a general love God, love your neighbor, what happens is you devolve into where we are now, this sort of hazy, muzzy, oh, gee, I love everybody, and nothing to it. The details are important. And so what 
Hillel says is love God, love your neighbor. But there's a whole bunch of details, and you need to go study those now. I've given you the essence. Go study the details. Paul is doing the same thing here. And he's essentially quoting Yeshua, which says the whole law is love God, love your neighbor. And then he will come down and give this list of things that you're not to do. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh, notice he's saying works of the flesh, not works of the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Those are all forbidden in the Torah. So if love God, love your neighbor was enough, why did Paul then go through this list of other things that you're not supposed to do? If it's just sort of this generalized love God, love your neighbor, he can stop there. Told you everything you need to know. But he doesn't. He goes on. And he gives you this list. There isn't any reason to give that list if this sort of undifferentiated love your neighbor is sufficient. It is not. You have to study the details. 21. Envy, drunkenness, orgy, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are Torah. And if you live contrary to Torah, it says here, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Messiah Yeshua have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Onward to chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Transgression is defined by the Torah. So the only way you know somebody has been caught in transgression is if you understand the Torah. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Messiah. Now we're going to have two bearing of burdens. Let me just read all the way through five and then we'll come back and unpack this. So verse two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Messiah. For if anyone thinks he is something while he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So what you have is bear one another's burden. And then in verse 5, each has to bear his own load. The underlying Greek words are different. The word for burden, I don't, I don't know what they are and I don't speak Greek and I'm not even close. But the word for burden in the Greek in verse 2 is a different word than the word for burden in five. And it is my understanding 
not being a Greek scholar, that the first one is burdens that are so heavy that they would crush you. Things going on in your life that would crush you, and in that case, you're to come along beside, and you're to comfort, and you're to help, and you're to help people bear up, and you're to help them bear their burdens. The second kind is everybody has to carry his own weight. It is not acceptable for you to be a freeloader. Everybody see the difference there. One is encouragement, comfort, giving somebody a hand up when he's really down. The other one is you're expected to be an adult and you're expected to carry your share of work. Verse 6. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Sowing and reaping, the Bible uses it all over the place. And the idea there is your behavior is seed. The things you do are seeds. And those seeds will grow to maturity and will produce a crop. If you're going through your life sowing weeds and you're expecting a wheat harvest at the end, you're going to be very disappointed. If, on the other hand, you go through your life sowing wheat, at the end you have a right to expect a harvest. Now, in between, you have to defend the garden. So you got to pull weeds, you got to water it, you got to do all the things that a gardener would do to the seeds he has planted. But in the end, you have the right to expect a reward. And the reward is based on what you plant. As I've said before, one of the things about agriculture is the soil does not decide what kind of a crop it produces. So if I have this pot of soil and I go out there and I sow beans and I come back expecting to find wheat, I'm going to be really disappointed. No matter how much I pray, it's going to be beans. Paul is saying that these behaviors that he has described as characteristics of the flesh, if you are sowing those behaviors, you are sowing to the flesh, and what you're going to reap is death. And if you are sowing the things that he says are the fruits of the Spirit, what you're going to do is reap life. Verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And what Paul, I think, is describing there is defending the garden. In other words, as you go through life, you do something good, and you don't then defend the seed that you have planted, it's very possible to have weeds come and choke out what you have planted. Verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of the Messiah. Remember the first day, 
I talked about the fact that circumcision, in addition to being religious, is political. It's political in the sense that Jews have a religious exemption from paying attention to the cult of Caesar. And so the people who are coming to circumcise these new believers are doing so partially in the belief that if these folks claim to be following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they are not circumcised, then when they get in trouble, the Romans are going to come back to the Jews and say, what are you guys doing harboring traitors? So what Paul is saying here is that those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of the Messiah. So that one of the things that they are worried about is being persecuted. And I would suggest that the Romans are the ones that are doing the persecution. Although it could be other pagans. 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. Sort of like the evangelical how many souls have you won kind of a thing? You know, how many guys have you gotten circumcised? I'm again inferring that that's what we're talking about is I've got more than you have. Verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Yeshua. The grace of our Lord Yeshua Messiah be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Please consider becoming a sponsor. You can sponsor us for as little as a dollar a month. Please visit crimsonthread.com slash purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.